Greetings, everybody. I am Jubal Brousseau of Counter Esperanto Podcast, and I'm here with my co-host. Carl Eckler. And uh, Brian Kazaska from Twin Peaks Unwrapped and Geekonomics Podcast. And Josh Mitten from the Red Room Podcast and from the In Our House Now Podcast and author of the book Skeleton Key to Twin Peaks. In this special episode, we're doing a crossover podcast, which will be available on our respective platforms about the HBO series, The Last of Us, based on the PlayStation game of the same name. Years ago, Josh and Brian and I talked about the game's sequel because the story spoke so deeply and we just had to discuss it. Uh, this time, we're happy to have Carl with us. Carl's a non-gamer, but because of the magic of television, he was able to experience the first part of the story along with us. Uh, so because Carl is new to The Last of Us, I wanted to start by getting his thoughts because he just finished the series yesterday. Carl? The uh, zombie story that's about the zombie is not something that's going to work since 1968. It's just about there being zombies there. That's not very new. It's not very interesting. And in fact, that watershed moment of zombiedom, Night of the Living Dead was, again, not really about the living dead, but it was about the human beings who interacted with them. And Last of Us is all about human beings and how we interact and how we love and why we hate, which is usually because of love. It's an intensely human story about non-human monsters erupting out of human beings. Kind of a tale for our time, one might say. Absolutely. One thing that Brian and I talked about before you guys came on, when you're watching the series as someone or with someone who has no knowledge of the game and what, what was the experience like? So did you watch this alone, Carl? I was entirely alone when I watched it. There was pretty much everybody I know telling me to watch it, though. And fortunately, not saying very much about how I should watch it or really why. So everything was a wonderful revelation the first time I saw it, which was, for the most part, yesterday. So very fresh in your mind. Brian, you wanted to talk about the experience of watching it with your wife. Because I played this game back in 2013 and I experienced it. I didn't really have many friends who played it. And I had to listen to podcasts to really, you know, listen to the conversation. And I didn't have anyone to talk to. And then I met you guys. And obviously we got to talk about it a couple of years ago. My wife does not like video games at all, so she's never going to watch me play. She doesn't care. When the show was coming out, I was just like, oh, we have to watch this. You're going to love it. It was so fun after that first episode to watch her just instantly fall in love with it. We don't have kids. This is the closest I'll ever have a kid reliving this thing through someone else's eyes. I got more out of it because I got to share it with someone else. Just the experience of her falling in love with Joel and Ellie and that final episode. I don't know about you guys, but that Sunday I was anticipating everything that's going to happen that entire day. And I'm like, are they going to nail it? And what is my wife going to say? The moment they go into the hospital, I had a lump in my throat. I was just like anticipating like how they're going to pull this off. And I thought they did an amazing job hearing my wife gasp when Joel confronts the doctor and she's just like, don't kill him. And then he does. She's like, don't kill the nurses. You know, just hearing her go through all that stuff. It was interesting just hearing her afterwards say, I was with Joel until he lied. And I know we'll talk about that. So I don't want to go much further on that. But hearing someone else say, I was okay with mass murder. But the moment he lied, I had a problem with that. A week later, she's like, I keep thinking about the ending. Those two nurses were there. Is part two going to be about that? 
am I going to cry a lot? I'm like, I'm not going to say anything. We both cried a lot, especially the Bill and Frank episodes. I don't know. As I get older, I cry a lot. But man, that episode got us both. I don't know, uh, Josh, if you watch it with anyone, but that was my experience with having it with someone brand new to the story. And I, I thought it was a, uh, it was a fun ride. I did. I watched it with my, my wife, who is my television partner. So we, we watch a lot of those types of shows, but she is not a horror fan. So I had to talk her into it. She wasn't sure up to the first episode. The scene that really, I think, unnerved a lot of people was the old lady twitching in the background of that shot in the pilot episode. That just kind of almost sealed the deal. Now, when I first played the game, I actually replayed it during COVID in the theater. So I went downstairs by myself in a room and just played that game. And, and you know, that helped me process a lot of the loneliness that, you know, I'm sure we all felt in 2020 as it came through. And, and that was about a two week experiment of sitting in the dark alone, playing that game by myself. And I was frankly happy to have the company to, to travel with me along the story this time. I had my uh, my partner, Sarah, with me the whole time watching the show. And it was interesting because, again, she's not a, a gamer. Although I think I might have mentioned this when you guys and I talked about the second game, how there was a certain element of it that helped me process the passing of my parents. My dad passed away uh, December of 2019, and my mom passed away three weeks later in uh, January of that year. And we had the memorial the weekend before the shutdown. And that was sort of my last time being in public, really. <laughs> uh, then the game came out and there's something about Joel, I would say that makes me think of my father if he had lost his family in a similar way at a similar age. My father was a Vietnam vet and I do have an inkling of some of the things he had to do, uh, some of the processing that he had to do. And then coming back to a family, if he had lost my sisters, it was before me, but if he had lost my sisters in a similar way, I could see him becoming somebody like Joel to kind of lose his way, lose his humanity a bit. He was a very loving, kind person, but I could definitely see a dark side that might have occurred. All the things that happened in the course of the, of the two games, but, but the first one too, you talk about Josh, like processing loneliness. There's something about the story of connection and love that I think is not only fantastic in the game and, and it works really well as a game that you're playing through as these characters, but this HBO show, somehow being able to see it in flesh and blood took it to a whole other level. Pedro and Bella, it all just kind of hangs on them. That's one of the reasons why I really wanted Carl to experience this story because uh, he's, you know, very anti-zombie and I get it, you know, especially after The Walking Dead and so many years of that show, you know, and, but I was just, trust me on this, it's one of the greatest stories told in the medium. And it took a long time for me to actually take that final step because I was so depressed by the whole Walking Dead phenomenon and the spinoffs and everything. I struggle with clinical depression and stories about the impossibility of overcoming our human foibles are very difficult for me to process. So I'm grateful that The Last of Us really wasn't exactly about that. That existed, but as backdrop rather than being the foreground where in Walking Dead, by episode six, I would go, oh, oh, I get it. it um, the, those aren't the zombies. Those are the humans who can't and pull their asses out of a teacup yeah <laughs> you said carl that a lot of the zombie things have to do with like we are the real monsters and there is an element of that to the last of us but really i think what's foregrounded in this story is love the beauty of love and then the things that it makes you do that you know the darker side of it so you're at least getting a full spectrum it definitely ends on a very disquieting note which we'll discuss but it's not just a dark story they did such a beautiful job with episode three 
giving us Bill and Frank, not just representing a middle-aged gay couple having a relationship. It's all of us who seek to find connection. You get the sense that Bill has lived a long and lonely life, and somehow it took the Cordyceps pandemic to find his meaning. He says, you were my purpose. One of the lines in that episode that really speaks to me was when he says, this isn't the tragic suicide at the end of the play, which for many, many years, that was what gay people actually got in media and in stories is they had to find a tragic end. Otherwise, it wasn't something that's going to get published. And this wasn't a tragic end. They went out on their own terms. They lived a long life together, full of love. And they went out on their own terms. Craig Mazin, I don't know if you listened to the, uh, the official podcast for it, but Craig Mazin said that he took great pains. He says, I'm a middle-aged man. This knows what it's like to be in a long-term relationship, but I'm not gay. He says, I wanted to make sure that we got a middle-aged gay man to direct this, a middle-aged gay man to edit, the production designer, as many people as possible so that this wouldn't even be through a straight lens. He wanted to make sure that the representation was done well. And he interviewed them and went over the script before they even filmed it to make sure that the details were correct. And I feel that that shows not only were the details correct, but it moved all of us because it felt correct. It felt like this was a relationship as it is and lived experience. And I think that that is sort of a hinge that the rest of the story hangs on because it allows some of the darker things to go down easier because you're seeing this full spectrum of human relationships and love. Yeah, well said. The shock of that episode with Bill and Frank is not that Bill realizes he's gay. It's that he fell in love at all. That was a man who truly hated the world. He's a survivor like Joel and like Ellie and like the Reverend Dave, I think his name is. They're all survivors. What do you have to do to be a survivor amongst the last human beings? If we trace the history of the decline of America, pop culture-wise, back, it will be two shows, Survivor and The Walking Dead, that broke America, I believe. Survivor, zero-sum game, everyone's out to get you, there's only one winner, and you put it on TV, and then The Walking Dead, where people wander about aimlessly until death finds them. <laughs> there is no purpose there, but, but in The Last of Us, there is a drive westward. And all of the main characters are, are in motion to a different place, maybe a better place, but very few are in motion towards a worse place. So there are dangers out there. Unfortunately, Bill and Frank were one of the few who stayed in place and succeeded. That episode by itself felt like a mini movie. What they pulled off for a story purpose to get everyone so invested into two characters you just were introduced and you get their entire story. You get a, a little backstory and you get what's going on with them and how they end up passing away. It was beyond, I usually, you watch one of these episodes, do you get that attached, that emotionally attached? I don't know. For me, I was very emotionally attached. And a lot of people I talked to said all the same. It felt like watching a mini movie, a very great standalone piece of work. And also just with our larger story with, uh, you know, what Joel and Ellie were doing in that episode was they were, you know, Joel was siphoning gas and then Ellie finds the pun book. Episode three is where you first see the chink in Joel's armor. You get a sense when you see that first episode, you know, he and Sarah like to laugh with each other. You can see the terror on Pedro's face, such as this performance and the, the terror on his face when he's standing there and realizing that she's telling jokes and he wants to laugh. You know, he's feeling something that he hasn't felt in 20 years and it scares the shit out of him. That is sort of the same moment when Frank comes out of the hole and he says, there's no free lunch. Arby's is a restaurant. 
the look on Bill's face is very similar to uh, Joel's when it's like, holy shit, I feel like I'm making a connection and I can't even remember the last time this happened. It's just beautiful because you can start to see the parallels right away, you know, because I know that there were some people that were saying that three was sort of like a filler episode, but no, it's absolutely, I think it's the linchpin of the whole. It's the heart. Yeah. And it was a gift to the gamers because that, I mean, Carl, you probably don't know this, but the bill in the, in the video game was very similar in character, but you had no depth there. Obviously Frank wasn't involved. It was a pretty transactional The most beautiful part of that episode to me was the final scene because the menu screen on the game is this open window with these blowing curtains and this kind of really creepy, peaceful background. And they actually made that the closing scene on that episode. I damn near cried when I saw it. It it really, really hit me hard. So good. Yeah. How about backing up here and thinking about that first episode? We get a lot of setup with Sarah and Joel. In the game, it opens up with the watch gift, you know, where Sarah gives him the watch and then she goes to sleep and then wakes up with Joel not in the house. So there really isn't any getting to know her except that Sarah is the first character that you control in the game. So this brings us into a little bit about talking about the difference between playing the story and watching the story is the connection that we get in the series is going to be more about Sarah, more about the quotidian life. You're introduced to Tommy, you're introduced to Joel in these scenes in the kitchen, and you see her going, getting the watch fixed, and then the slow sort of creep of dread as you know sirens are going off and helicopters are passing over. In the game, you are controlling Sarah, and there's that intimacy of controlling this character, which is something that takes the place of standard scripted story. So, Brian, I want to start you off with talking about the differences between watching the story as a scripted series and playing that part of the story as a gamer. It was surreal, that first episode, because some of the set pieces, to see them bring it to life was pretty amazing. I think going through that whole episode, as a gamer, you're watching it, This is the setup for the whole series. If they pull off this first episode, I think we're in good hands. If they don't pull it off, I don't know what to expect. I felt like they nailed the tone. They nailed what they needed to. They expanded on what we wanted. I think that made me very excited for the rest of the series. I knew we were in good hands. That whole Sarah stuff, you're getting to see the neighbors. We saw the dog that barked from the game. They did change a little bit things here and there, which were fantastic. The whole thing with being in the wheat, I remember the episode aired, some podcasts I was listening to, they're all going, they kept mentioning cake and cookies and all this stuff. I wonder why someone writing a script is not going to mention these things if it's not important. And then like, I think three episodes in is when we learned that, if I remember correctly, it came up with conversation because it was Joel's birthday, the whole cake thing. And she didn't like raisins and the cookies and stuff so it came out organically it didn't feel like they're hitting you over the head like this is the reason but it was fun and just playing the game i think like there are two different experiences now and it's so great we have a whole new version of the last of us in that first episode and the way they introduced everybody i thought was fantastic i really have no complaints or anything but i want to hear what you guys think uh, one thought before I move on to Josh is uh, is the Atkins diet. I mean, what's more 2003 than the Atkins diet, right? 100%. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and they nailed the context. Even with the movies and stuff that were up in, in, uh, in the city, 
was perfect. It was, yeah, yeah, Joel yeah, says, yeah. I'm on Atkins, you know, and uh, yeah, you know, not necessarily everybody that ate wheat was going to get it, but that's how it spread globally so quickly. And that's not something that's mentioned in the game. Two things in the game that do not happen are one is the source of it, how it actually spread. They throw you in the QZ with Joel. And so you really just have Boston and all, all everything that's going on around him. So there's not a whole lot of context. And also one of the things which we'll get to later is that I'm really glad that we got a little bit more about how Ellie's immunity works. And they didn't call it a vaccine, which drove me crazy because you can't make a vaccine for a fungus, you know, so, so we get some explanation there. But, but uh, Josh, talk about that, your experience of that first episode. Well, I thought it was pretty much picture perfect. I mean, I, I echo everything Brian said. I felt like the casting was just pristine. It was perfect. They got the exact right people. And the thing that hit me, first of all, was just what an incredible actor Pedro Pascal is in The Mandalorian, considering you can't see the guy's face. Like that dude acts with his body expressions in a tight suit of armor and his voice. And then when you get his face on top of that, you're getting a whole nother level of that man's expression for creativity that I was just immediately, I fell in love with it. I mean, the guy is, what's not to love about him as an actor? He's, he's one of the, the best we have, I think. It evoked the emotions that I felt playing the game. So that was basically my test. If I can feel the same way at the end of act two of the game, as I feel at the end of episode one of the show, then I will believe that I was in good hands. And, and I was, I was confirmed in that. Carl, can, you know, I know you didn't play the game and you also kind of went in with a little bit of misgivings about zombies. One of the reasons why it's sort of a legendary story is that even though the plot itself, and I know that Neil Druckmann, you know, the creator of the game has said this, is that the plot of the first game is relatively formulaic. I mean, you kind of know how this is going to go. It's a one person's the cure tale. We need to get this person to, you know, on this long journey, and then something's going to happen that hopefully saves the world. And it's probably going to go terribly wrong. That's actually something that you can say is predictable. But within that, there's a lot of things that aren't. And there, there's that sort of switch in the first episode where we see the source of Joel's fundamental trauma. But talk about that, your experience there, Carl. Thinking about zombie and especially zombie apocalypse uh, movies, it seems to me that they can basically go one of three different directions as far as meta plot if it's going to be long enough to have one it can be kind of sort of the walking dead there's zero hope whatsoever i mean they throw up about a couple of things about getting to atlanta and stuff but from their description of how it works any dead tissue turns into a zombie in 20 seconds you do know that two-thirds of all fetuses are spontaneously aborted and become dead tissue well that's the end of the human race game over <laughs> just very obvious from the very beginning that we be fucked in the walking dead universe night of the living dead starts out with it being over after that night there's a definite end point and the third which is i'd say it has the most dramatic possibilities in it is the one that last of us seems to be going down where there's an answer but they are not going to make it easy on us realizing that that was the direction we were going down that hooked me in almost as much as the really dense character web and that first episode that both has a video game quality to it with airliners crashing down main street and little nods to other horror stories that i liked a lot the creepy uh, grandma getting turned into a cordyceps zombie really creepy 
but after you've seen Exorcist 3 with grandma on the ceiling. Yeah, you mentioned the plane crashing. That was definitely a cheeky wink from the showrunners because the way it goes down in the game is that they get T-boned by a car going the other direction and then that is the car accident. And then they narrowly escape that and then 30 seconds later, a, a piece of a crashing plane bounces off of the wall and takes them out, you know? And so it's this thing of just like, things are going to happen either exactly the same, they're going to be changed utterly or deleted, or they're going to happen not the way that you expect. I think they juggled that really well. So for the non-gamers, you're just kind of enjoying the story. And for the gamers, there's a lot of stuff to sort of say, oh, that's an interesting little change. I'll have to think about that. So I think that changing Sarah's, uh, adding more character to replace the controlling of that character on the part of the player is a really smart way to do it. And that was the thing that made me think when I first saw the first episode of that, okay, they know exactly what they're doing. I mean, really having Craig Mazin and Neil Druckmann together on that, I was thinking that's, this is going to be great. I also did not know that Mazin before Chernobyl was known for spoof films, like scary movie. He did the hangover movie. He did, he's known for goofball comedies, like kind of like throwaway films, most of them spoofs of, uh, of genre films. And he felt like, I, I saw some interviews with him where he felt like he was stuck in this part of Hollywood, which is sort of being a work-a-day screenwriter, but not really working on anything that really spoke to his soul. Chernobyl was a Hail Mary pass to sort of step into a larger, something that he felt more meaning. And boy, did he knock that out of the park, right? And that kind of brought, because you notice how they say, not from the makers of The Hangover, <laughs> I say the maker, the, from the makers of Chernobyl. And that was how he positioned himself to be able to do The Last of Us. But I think that his time in the trenches doing parody films really helped because in order to do a good parody, you need to know the source material really well. So he knew zombie films, he knew uh, horror, he knew action films inside and out because he's been parodying them his whole career up until that point. So in a weird way, feeling unfulfilled in all of those roles was actually exactly what he needed to get to the position to pull off The Last of Us with Neil Druckmann. <laughs> <laughs> funny how life works, you know. And being funny helps you more with horror than most people would know because the, the basis of comedy and horror are the same to set up expectations and then break them. And he got really good at that. Right. Ostensibly, this is a zombie apocalypse story, but it's fair to say that the infected are quite unique among most creatures in the genre, and that here they are sidelined in favor of the more human story. What are your thoughts about their portrayal in the game or the series, and also the fact that scenes featuring the infected are fairly sparse in this first season? You know what? It's interesting. By the end of the show, it didn't bother me at all. Like I was just so invested in the human interactions, the characters the changes they brought to the table that when we had those few episodes, when we saw them, it was awesome. And I didn't get sick of it. And it never bothered my wife. When we went into it, she was like, is this going to be like The Walking Dead? I said, not really. It's going to be a very different. And I know uh, Mason did say, and Neil Druckmann, they said when they do adapt part two, there could be more infected, obviously, but they said it has to serve the story. And I think that's what separates this story from everything else, especially The Walking Dead. It has to serve the story. So I think this story they told, The Infected is a backdrop. Yeah, it's there, but they have QZs. They have areas that, that you're not going to see infected. I think if, especially the whole David episode, you know, Ellie and David do actually fight infected in the game. You fight infected together, and that kind of makes Ellie trust David more that, 
oh, well, we fought side by side. Maybe I can trust you. I liked they didn't. And I enjoy the fact that the conversation was directly from the game, but David had to do more work to bring her in. That goes to what his character is, not about killing infected. Because honestly, I think David was by himself with Ellie. The chances of one of them getting bit were probably very high. I don't really think he's a fighter. He has his goons to do that. They weren't there. For me, I honestly, it was refreshing. It was nice. And just last week, before the final, I talked to John Thorne. We had the same kind of conversation. And he kind of echoed what you're saying, Carl, about it became, you know, every episode, they're going to kill some infected, rinse, wash, repeats. You got kind of numb to it. And it became not fun anymore. You're just kind of like okay, who's going to die this week? So uh, for me, totally refreshing. I honestly, as long as it serves the story, I'm happy whatever they do for season two. We think of the danger in the entire show as just kind of a meter, you know, as take that take the object of danger away from it, whether it's infected or whether it's people. The danger meter never goes down in The Last of Us. In The Walking Dead, it has peaks and valleys, and, and most of them are boring, to your point. After a few seasons, it's the same thing. Here, that danger level, while the objects of danger changed, it never went down. So the intensity of being involved as a viewer, which is a passive activity, like in the game, you're inside of it, you literally experience every single fight, and you probably kill Two, three hundred people, zombies and people. So by the end of it, you're quite numb in the game, but you still have this other story that's largely taking place as subtext. They bring that completely out in the show, and that is the main focus. So I did not miss the infected. I loved what I saw. I feel like the the episode where they came up out of the ground and you got the bloater and all that, like that was a fantastic episode of horror and intensity but then what unfolds after that is the true human trauma that flows from that and it had nothing to do with the cordyceps everything that happened after that were people just being different degrees of awful to one another yeah and, and carl give us your thoughts not only on the uh the sparseness because this really had more to do with the gamers having to fight them constantly and then the fact that there was less action in the series was a little bit of bone of contention for some people but what are your thoughts on this particular kind of creature that's stitched together by fungus a completely different organism on this planet i of course didn't notice that there was any difference between the number of infected that they dealt with versus the game because i didn't play the game it just felt completely natural so i can only assume that they did it very correctly yeah i feel like it did hammer home the current uh, understanding that the zombie apocalypse is an apocalypse not because of the zombies it's always because humans are bad at things like getting along or dealing with change or maintaining infrastructure <laughs> I thought we said we weren't going to go political. <laughs> the bit that really made me sit forward and take notice of how the infected were more than just undead ghouls with mushrooms growing out of their faces. When Joel said, basically, they um, are connected underneath the ground, filaments running as long as a mile in some cases. And that made sense why they're always laying down and hugging the ground or being connected to walls. They're, they're like a modern tantalus a child of the earth. They're connected to the ground and through the ground. Like a mythic giant, they are all one mind. Not that, you know, it's a Shakespeare quoting kind of mind, but they all have one purpose. 
like the Borg in Star Trek, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. They are essentially a new hybrid organism. You could say that the fungus are acting as parasites, but really what they're doing is they're making the human body, the shell that they're inhabiting, an extension of themselves. And in a way, uh, David's awe of them is one of the only relatable traits that he has. He kind of twisted into his religion, but it's this idea that this is now a new thing on earth. Which is different and honestly much scarier than the undead because you do get the sense that at least for a while that you are inside there that basically when those early hours or weeks or months of being in the sway of this thing that it is like a hand on the back of your head steering you and your mind is there just as the scientist says in the cold open of the first episode, it floods your brain with hallucinogens first. And so you completely lose track of what's real and what it isn't. So just imagine being on a mushroom trip and not having any control of your body. My favorite infected is the clicker, partly because of the performances that it requires to pull a clicker off both in the game and in the series, but also this notion that the mushroom pushes your face out so that you essentially have a resonance chamber in your sinus cavity. In order to see, they have the ability to essentially do echolocation. And that's what all those clicks and squeaks are for, like a, like a dolphin, in order to be able to look, find their way around. Now in the game, that's functional because, okay, this is where I need to be stealthy or, ha- or be really heavily armed, because these things will kill you in one hit. The one scene that you get with them in the museum is just so uh, perfect, because that is around the time that you first encounter them, and the time that they're the most horrifying, frankly, in the first game. That whole element of them being uh, connected through the filaments, that's actually new to the series as well. They're really fleshing out what these infected are. Them doing those cold opens for the first couple episodes, really giving the audience something to chew on. And I think one of the most chilling, speaking of horror, it wasn't even what I saw. It's what I heard from the uh, scientist when the military pulls her out of her lunch. And it's just like, this is what's going down. What's your opinion? And then when she's just like, start bombing, start bombing. That gave me chills. They didn't do that in the game. They just gave us that intro, I think, with the ants and the fungus, with the opening credits, and that's all you got. But that was so chilling when she's just like, I need to go and see my family. Just start bombing. There's That's it. We're done. Consider that culturally globally, culturally, human race has just gone through a significant common trauma with this pandemic. And if anything, like we're all still pretty raw from that experience, I think. And so to to see that on screen and realize that there was another path where somebody could have literally said that in, in China or, you know, bomb, just start bombing. That's how quickly that could change. It's quite frightening. I agree with you. And I don't like mushrooms anyway. I don't trust those little sons of bitches. The only time I've ever eaten them is for the psychedelia. I don't want them on my pizza. I don't want them in my yard. They freak me out. I love mushrooms in concept, but it's just not in my mouth. Agree. Well, they're also gateway to the, to the fairy realms. Yes, so exactly. You <laughs> don't want to eat anything inside of fairyland either. Yeah, so. yeah. yeah, that's true. Yeah, Good point. So showrunners Neil Druckmann and Craig Mazin say ultimately that this is a story about love the beauty that all forms of love bring to our lives, as well as the terrible things it makes us do. What does this call to mind for you? What are some of your favorite moments where this theme is brought to bear? There are probably three key moments in this story. I think one of them obviously is with Bill and Frank. I was never afraid before you showed up. Like imagine that where 
your fear is actually rooted in the thing you love instead of the, the thing that you supposedly hate or fight against. Like there's a maturity in that, that I feel sets the stage for what comes forward. The next piece is obviously where Joel saves Ellie or not even saves her. He collects her after she saved herself from David. I, I've got you, baby girl. Like, I don't know about you guys, but that was it. I just came undone at that point. That was, oh, that yeah. was an incredible moment. And then the third yeah. element that uh, of this is right before they got captured by the fireflies where he had admitted that, you know, he tried to kill himself, but flinched. She says, you know, I guess time heals all wounds. And he says it wasn't time. And then they just look at each other and they, they have that moment and we have that moment with them. Those are the three key moments where love breaks into the story. That's like the Twin Peaks moment where Norma puts her hand on Ed's shoulder. Like that, that moment, that breakthrough, that's why we watch art. And if you look back at The Walking Dead, that moment, it's nowhere that I can remember in that whole show. And I, I hate to keep comparing it to this, but I think it's valid. The stories that both of these horror experiences are telling are quite different. And one is transcendent and the other is uh, the opposite, whatever the opposite of transcendence is. Yeah. Carl, uh, um, what are your thoughts on this? The theme of love and how it iterates throughout this first season. When Natalie tells Riley, what's option three? There was an option three. They just didn't know it. Ellie was immune and Riley wasn't. That's the way it can go. I mean, basically, um, the three ways that great love can go is fast, long, or broken. They didn't have any choice about really about which one it was going to be. And it ended up being broken. It was rough, Brian. <laughs> What Carl and Josh just said, I'm not going to reiterate. Those are all the ones that come to my mind right away. But the one I'm going to focus on, because I feel like they deserve more of a spotlight, is Henry and Sam. That is a fantastic little story that, you know, we get about the history. We know what's going on with them and how they made Sam more dependent on Henry. He wasn't deaf in the game. And I love that aspect. I love what they did there with this character. What happens at the very end, I think, you know, Henry's purpose on life was to protect Sam. Obviously, when Sam turns, I knew that was coming. And I didn't know how they were going to pull it off. And man, I choked up on that one. That scene is so pivotal to Joel because I think he sees what transpired in front of him. And obviously, we learn that Joel was going to go down that route. Anyway, when he lost his uh, daughter, he tried to commit suicide and he couldn't do it. Henry was, that was my purpose. There was no other purpose. And now he's gone. I'm done. He has to put Sam down and he kills himself. It's a tragic moment. Ellie sees how people can love each other so intensely and they want to protect them. And sometimes they cannot. It's like a life lesson for both of them, obviously, that their lives can go similar. I just love that character, those, those two characters. I thought they did them justice for the television show. One thing I want to bring up, though, and I don't want to forget to say this, is speaking of love, Jubal, you made me think about this. I've never thought about this until today. Obviously, we know there's a through line with Joel. When we see him in the QZ, he's holding a child and he throws it right into the fire. And then we go to the end of the game. And he's taking that child out of the fire. You can see Ellie's in that. She will be dead. And he pulls her out. He saves her. I didn't realize that until we were having this conversation 
how it all comes back around. You could see it, it represents how he built the walls. He has no love for anything. He's just dead inside at that point in his life. And then now he's taking that person out of that fire and he's willing to do anything to uh, save it. Yeah, that's great. Yeah. One of the things that strikes me about that moment is that when he throws the corpse of the child into the fire. What's interesting is that we get some proof that at least Fedra isn't completely made up of psychopaths. There's the child that wanders through the woods and ends up being picked up. And the woman going through, you know, they're probably a caseworker, such as it is, is going through this process. The child is tested, spared the knowledge that they are infected, and then given a nice balm for what might be to come before they are euthanized. I read that totally differently. Really? What did you see? Utility. The test comes back. They realized child's infected. We've got to dispose of it. How's the easiest way to do that? Light to it a lot so that the kid doesn't fight us, scratch us, and cause more casualties. That's an interesting way to think about it because now if you jump forward to uh, the way that Ellie is treated by the fireflies, which we'll discuss later, that's something to think about. Then this child ends up in the bed of a truck. The woman working the corpse disposal detail sees that it's a child. She can't, you know, she asks Joel to handle it. And like Brian says, he's built up this wall. Funny thing about this wall is that it's reflexive and he can turn it on and off, as we see in that last episode. It's not like finding this love in Ellie has utterly changed his entire way of being. It's changed what he thinks about life. But come to find out, he can still turn that on and off, can't he? And that's going to be the thing that people are going to come down on one side or the other as to whether, whether or not what he did was justified. He does certainly seem to have the ability to flip into beast mode when necessary. And it's the women in his life that moor him, whether it's his daughter in the beginning or Tess for many, many years in between, ultimately becomes Ellie himself. He, he's always invested himself kind of at the command of these strong women. And honestly, that's not a bad way to go. You can find someone who's who's steadfast and strong as a partner, 100% understand doing that. But the rage and the beast mode, you know, so to speak, it's always there inside Joel. Uh, he may be getting old and struggling with it, but I feel in his confession to his brother, which is another great love story, when he yells his brother's name in the middle of the street, another moment where I just got chills. I was like, that's it. You can't get that in the video game. But that confession that he makes to Tommy about feeling old and frail and unable to meet the challenge of protecting the soul that he's now been given orders essentially to shepherd, that's a tough spot to see your hero be in. And at that point, Joel is very much still our hero. So uh, it's a sobering moment. Absolutely. You know, and I want to pay a little bit more tribute to Tess before I move on. Anatorv's great. I love that we get the flashback in episode three to see exactly how hard life has been in the interim because Joel and Tess actually look really good. Tess is clearly, this is something that's very faintly hinted by like maybe a single line of dialogue in the game. If we get more insight in the series that they have an intimate relationship, but Joel is completely closed off to anything kind of going beyond a certain point. Tess is in love with Joel and Joel never let her in. And she seems to understand that. She knows why, but that's something that, you know, in that climactic scene, and this is something that is in the game when she says, you know, it's like there, there has to be enough here for you to listen to me right now. On Ellie's arm, this is three weeks. And you look at her neck and she's already has the tendrils going up through her skin. It's like, this is less than an hour ago. This is real Joel. It is his connection to her that we get a little bit more insight in at the end of episode three where Ellie is reading Bill's letter. Bill is saying something about protecting Tess and she stops on the word Tess. 
Joel has to take that letter outside and just kind of have a moment. And we know, like, as you said, when you bring up the trip to Jackson and he's talking to Tommy, he's a complete wreck. That might be something to talk about now, which is Jackson, which is not something we, they, that's something they wanted to put in the first game, but they just didn't have the resources to do the whole thing. So they just did the power station. Jackson, Wyoming was supposed to be this whole thing. And it looks exactly the way it does. They bring it into the second game and it looks exactly the way it does in the second game. The experience of losing Tess, that was probably the first really significant loss, as far as we know, the first significant loss after Sarah. He's completely a wreck. This is not how it goes in the game. When uh, when Joel is talking to Tommy, he just kind of matter-of-factly lays it out. But what we get with Pedro and in the writing in the episode Kin, um, when he's talking to his brother, he's opening up in a way that he probably never has before, and he's opening it up to his brother. Well, he, I think he's unforgivably mean to Tommy throughout most of that encounter for that rage, that, that trauma. Is, he's definitely unloading that on his brother. And then he tries to unload it on Ellie. That whole idea of transferring these traumas, and she absolutely would not have it. Whereas Tommy took all of his damage. And I, and by the way, I'm assuming the backstory is that Joel followed Tommy to Iraq to protect him because they're both vets. You know, they, he has the bumper sticker on his truck when he's pulling out. That's Joel's truck. So he is an Iraqi vet. So there are a lot of things we can assume from that. The guy knows how to kill. He's definitely killed. He's killed to protect. And he has resentment to his brother for forcing him into that situation. So there's all kinds of subtext that's happening as he and his brother are, are having those conversations and Joel is unloading venomous poison on his brother and his brother is taking it because that's what he's done his whole life. And when he tries to do that with Ellie in the very next scene, she basically says, everyone I've ever cared about has either died or left except for you. And he crushes her at that moment. He's like, basically, I'm done with you. And of course, he comes back the next day. But that moment of trying to inflict trauma on, on the people who care for him most in the world is a fantastic example of a flawed hero. I mean, like it, it really is, because consider that he only has two episodes, I think, at that point, maybe three episodes at that point to get to the point where we knew he was going to be at the end of the game. And so I was like, OK, this is a challenge. So let's see if they can they can emotionally work this journey. And damn, if they didn't, I mean, it was just picture perfect. Brian, any thoughts on Joel and Tommy? Josh said it perfectly there. I really don't know how much to add. I mean, their dynamic, it was great. I will say when we got to see Jackson, my jaw dropped because I was like, this doesn't happen till part two. And you're right, pitch perfect. And then I was like, well, if they get a season two, they got the set. But man, I was like floored that we got to see Jackson in this season and they did such an amazing job pulling that off. And the relationship, I think, was better in the show. And I think it was more emotional, like Josh said. And, you know, yeah, they're brothers. They're going to unload on each other. That's what brothers do. And especially like Joel, he's just we got the whole protecting thing, too. You mentioned the vet thing in the very first episode. He called him up. He got put in jail for fighting or what have you. He's always been there. And he's like, I am the guy I has to protect my brother. And then he realizes his brother doesn't need protecting anymore. His brother found his life. That's another thing for Joel to kind of come to terms with. Like, man, my brother is doing good. Now what do I do? I, have, I got nothing. Well, yeah. And then I know that Tommy says something that he regrets, which is something to the effect of just because your life fell apart doesn't mean mine has to. That is the thing that sets Joel off. It's later when Joel is, I think, in the wood shop or something, and then Tommy comes in to apologize. And then that is when Joel is just at his, like, 
he knows what he said. And so I think that when he finally goes in to talk to Ellie, and this is something that Craig Mazin said that when I played the game, and I remember this myself, that that scene where Ellie is reading the diary and then it's basically, it's like, if you're going to bail on me, why don't you just bail on me, right? So he's like trying to pull the Band-Aid off. It's like, you know, if you find a wounded animal and you take care of it to a certain point where it feels like it's connected to you, but you have to let it go. That's the way that he's behaving, but it's only to save himself. It's only to save himself from that terror because he thinks, you know, I spent my whole life saving my brother. I'm asking my brother to save me once. And in order to do that, I need to essentially alienate this child who I've become uncomfortably connected to. I think this is actually the point in the story where things get very hard to separate because you have Joel's trauma, you have his relationship with Tommy, his relationship with Ellie, and then you also have Ellie's relationship to the world, which is everybody that I have known has either left me or died. And when he says to her, you have no idea what loss is, I am of two minds. One, no, she doesn't because she never knew what it was like to lose, again, infrastructure, the whole thing, you know, being able to go to a, a doctor, going to go to a dentist and get a tooth pulled out and have local anesthetic. She has no idea what she lost there. But to tell her that she has no idea what loss is, is really shitty put down. And obviously that was something that he felt that he had to say in order to sort of push her away. That resonated in the, the final episode when we get to the piece with her mother. The first sound that made Ellie cry was the gunshot that killed her mother. Yeah. The very first noise that you make in the world is a reaction to such violence and loss. It really was one of the most selfish things he could have said. But I'm going to compare it to a moment in a movie that none of you are expecting me to talk about, which is Harry and the Hendersons. <laughs> Do you remember the moment where he smacks the shit out of Bigfoot at the end? That wrecked me as a kid. Josh, I thought the same thing. Oh. And that's what he's doing in that moment is pushing her away forcefully so that he can protect her. Because remember, he's admitted that he's half a man. He's broken. He does not have the tool set with which to protect her on the journey they're going on. And he sees his brother doing so well and knows that he could come at it from a better strength uh, position, which, you know, I can't say that I think Joel is wrong in that. I understand why he did it, but we are as viewers devoted to the love of this father and, and child that's blooming. So it's, it's a highly conflicted emotional area for the viewer to be in. Gamers, we're just looking for the next zombie to kill, like, you know, at that point. But I really had to feel through these emotions in the show. Yeah. Um, Carl, what are your thoughts on this part of the story, which is Jackson, Wyoming? We have here a functioning community. It's run by Tommy's wife. In conjunction with everybody else, because it's communism. We're in a commune. <laughs> Yeah, I love that moment where Joel says, so it's communism. He said, no, no, you don't got that right. And she's like, no, this is literally communism. This is a commune. And then Tommy's mind is like blown a little bit. I, I love that. Yeah. What are your thoughts on, uh, on this idea of Jackson, this little presumed paradise? How about I take us through my thoughts as they were approaching Jackson, because I had no idea what was going to be there. My first thought was once they said river of death and it's, in the cold backwoods wilderness the hilarious harbinger couple on this side of the river basically said it's something different you see bodies infected and non-infected and they don't go into what condition the bodies are in or anything like that so i'm thinking okay this is going to be something that totally is going to come out of left field quite frankly i was expecting that wolves had taken over the whole thing that a wolf pack was going to be a nice kind of dark mirror to the Cordyceps Collective Mind. 
and the human inability to do anything at all collectively. Then when humans on horses show up, I get a weird vibe of Planet of the Apes because riding around with weird masks and um, rifles on horses. So my mind immediately clicked over to, oh, these are religious wackos and they're going to take them in and the price for being part of this ideal community is never being able to leave or blood oaths or dancing naked over child sacrifices or something. I don't know. And it turns out that it was a small group of mostly sane human beings able to work with each other in ways that both make a lot of sense in story and display a staggering amount of empathy and intelligence. I was not expecting that. The beauty of Jackson, I think, in, you know, it's because we do get more of it in the second game, is this feeling of like, oh my God, this is relative to everything that we've seen. This is almost a paradise. Obviously, you know, anywhere that there's people, there's going to be conflict. You know, there's a reason why they have giant walls. This is a place where Joel and his brother as licensed contractors. It's a moment I just love is that when Joel and Ellie are first riding away from Jackson. Everybody loved contractors. Everybody loved contractors, yeah. There's a moment there where he actually explains our current world pretty well. He, he says, uh, you know, some people wanted to own everything and other people didn't want anyone to own anything at all. And she's like, well, what did you do? I just went to work. Yeah. <laughs> Is there a better description of America right now than that? <laughs> what about this? So the, the idea that that Jackson is one view of a community functioning within a limited set of resources, I think they've made it pretty well. It felt like a, a land of equality. And then in a couple episodes, we're going to see a de- another kind of community that has a religious element, but they are operating on the other side of, uh, okay, people are, are now okay to eat. Once you cross the line where people are okay to eat and you've established a religious framework on top of that, Ellie is essentially given kind of the three temptations of Christ in the story at this point. So the first one would be to stay in the commune and and become part of the pack and do your part and live your life and you'll be protected and live a long life. The second one, she was essentially offered the power of, of rulership. I mean, I feel like David basically groomed her from the moment he saw her as this person can help me achieve what I'm looking to do in, the, in this life and we will rule the world together. And then the third temptation, of course, is, is the ultimate ultimate sacrifice for uh, to save all of humanity, which is, you know, Christ obviously took that route. Uh, Ellie did not get that choice because Joel took it away from her. So it's really interesting to think of the places that sensible people would have stopped, would have, would have been like, listen, I'm staying in Jackson. We're going to live here because these people know what they're doing and we can help defend. But they didn't do that. They pressed on into the wilderness and, and they both end up paying the price. The communities starting with Jackson are essentially three routes towards, if not utopia, but methods by which a human survival is possible. Small-scale communism like Jackson, the unity that comes from however horrifyingly corrupted, but faith. And then there's, in the mind of the creators and writers, the always beckoning but never quite delivering prospect that science is going to save us. We know which one they ended up in at the end of the show, end of the first season of the show. It's such a, yeah, the way that that arc basically starting with Kin, which is in Jackson and that, that whole arc, you know, yes, we get a flashback with Riley, right? Ellie's fundamental trauma, at least as a conscious person, as Josh pointed out, her first time being made to cry was hearing her mother being shot. 
Bella Ramsey was interviewed recently and she said that the, you know, what, what do you think scared Ellie most in this series? And it was, it was David, but it wasn't the stuff that you think. It was when David said, you have a violent heart because she knows that's true. That is one freaking smart kid. Yeah. <laughs> Especially uh, as a kid that hasn't yet played the second game. Oh, she hasn't? No, she's never played the games. Oh, well, she, once the show started airing, she treated herself by starting the first game. Also, I don't know if you were aware, Carl, because you probably were following the press on this, but the actress that plays her mother was the person who played her in the game. That's Ashley Johnson. She played Ellie in the game. So the uh, actress who played Ellie literally gave birth to the character <laughs> in the show. I did not know that. Very meta. Very meta. It's very meta, but also she doesn't change her voice at all, unlike Troy Baker, who was James in the previous episode. He was David's right-hand man. He plays Joel in the games. They took a lot of great pains to incorporate a lot of the original actors. In fact, Merle Dandridge, who plays Marlene in the series, played Marlene in the game. And she plays significantly older in the game, so it's kind of funny she aged into the character. That is something that's beautiful about this, is that they incorporated a lot of those original actors, but they did it smartly. Jeffrey Pierce, who played Tommy in the game, played Perry, the right-hand man to Kathleen. I don't know about you guys, but when they first showed Perry, my brain went to Tommy... And I was like, wait, that's not Tommy now. Okay, never mind. I'm confusing myself. And then I was like, holy cow, that is the guy who played Tommy in the game. But I don't know why it clicked. I was just like, it, are, are they telling us that Tommy now is Kathleen? Like, I got confused. Because <laughs> he had the big beard. And I was just like, what is going on here? But that was me just getting who that person was right away. Yeah, and like you said, Jubal, they were very smart about giving cameos and giving meaty roles to these people because they poured their hearts into the game. And I think it would have been a disservice to the fans and to them to just give them a walkthrough cameo. They gave them something to work with. And they're all fantastic actors. And I think it really proves to people who don't play games, the games now that come out, the people who are portraying characters are fantastic actors fantastic yeah right the technology is catching up and even between the first game and the second the first game they had some basic animation that they could draw from the actors but the team of animators had to animate their faces for the second game they actually had the ability to do an, a true performance capture but that second game it's unbelievable what they did you're feeling like truly this is this is capturing a performance of these actors they just did such a brilliant job with casting the series I don't want to go too much into things like, you know, fan backlash and everything, because any of you that are into Star Wars have known people are terrible anyway, <laughs> when, when, when it comes to this stuff. Uh, but there was a backlash against Bella being cast because she doesn't look like the character model. Craig Mazin and Neil Druckmann said, yeah, okay, just wait, watch what she does. And that stuff got a lot quieter after the first few episodes. And it's now basically non-existent now that the series over is because she's amazing. She's Ellie. So is Ashley Johnson. Neil Druckmann said recently, when I was a kid growing up, and he's roughly our age, right? He said, my Joker was Jack Nicholson. I love Jack Nicholson. I, I, that was my all-time favorite. When I heard that Heath Ledger was going to play the Joker, I was like, come on. How is this punk going to play the Joker? And then when I watched that performance, it wasn't Jack Nicholson, but he was amazing. So that is my hope here is that Ashley Johnson and Bella Ramsey are both Ellie in the same way that Jack Nicholson and Heath Ledger are both the Joker. I think that was a great way to a great way to put it because this is 
This is something that I think that a lot of other communities don't have to deal with. I mean, yeah, you do have to deal with some of this in like TV and film, but for some reason, this franchise, because it was so well done, because people are so connected to these characters, there's always going to be some sort of a backlash. And some of it's going to be unsavory, some of it's going to be racist and sexist and all this other, all the rest, but they're proving themselves beyond a shadow of a doubt. And that's all I'm going to say about that. Yeah, yeah. Just to add on real quick, I always remind myself, and sometimes I'll say this to other people, when a new actor is filling in a role of an iconic character that everybody loves, I always remind myself, okay, you love Michael Keaton as Batman, but when he was cast to play Batman, people wrote into Warner Brothers by hand. They didn't go on Twitter. They had a writing campaign to get Keaton off because he was a comedian. They were like, this is a disgrace. This is going to be horrible. And he proved them wrong. I think it's something just to think about. Just You have to give the people who are producing this benefit of the doubt, hopefully. I'm old enough to remember Ann Rice put, taking out a full ad in the New York Times about Tom Cruise <laughs> yeah. playing the vampire Lestat and then had to eat her words publicly when he killed that role. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. yeah. It turns out that uh, actors, maybe sometimes especially ones that we underestimate, are often really good and, and in ways that you didn't anticipate because they're actors, you know, and so people get, you know, they, you know, I'd sort of like to continue on here because we have really haven't talked about Joel and Ellie as the focus of this. We, we've kind of been skirting around a little bit. Yes. But first, who's your favorite Donna? <laughs> oh no. You're really going to make us go there. You know, Moira Kelly's my answer. So <laughs> Moira. Yeah. Yeah. Moira Kelly's mine. Mine too. We're, we're all Moira heads. Oh my God. We're all Moyers? Awesome. I like Moira. I will always say that Moira played a better Donna for that movie. I think for the show, she worked as well. But I'm a Moira head. I, I, yeah, yeah. Yeah. And I think that the Donna that we get in the show is, is fine because she's in that pocket of the teen melodrama. So Lara Flynn Boyle works really well for that. There isn't a whole lot of teen melodrama in the film. Transubstantiation in actors and drama, it's a thing that can happen. And I, I think people maybe should get a little bit more relaxed about that. Be more open to it. You know, it's art. It's not something to fight over. It's something to experience together. Well, I watched Game of Thrones. And so I remember Bella Ramsey's character from that series where she's 11 years old. It was her first acting gig. And she is owning a room full of 40-year-old men in a really tense political discussion. Anybody that would say, well, you know, she doesn't look like the character model. Screw you. This kid has chops. I am thrilled to actually see what she's going to do with this character. And she and she did it. Part of it is what she's done in this series, as we will all see, what she's going to have to do in the next season or two. Anyone rewatching this, pay attention to her eyes as she acts. She does about 70% of her acting with her eyes. And I mean that in, in the most complimentary way. You can tell exactly what she's thinking. And she is always searching for the next thing. And there's an element of curiosity to how she just looks at the world and we can see her looking at it and we get drawn into that. I mean, it is astounding, her talent. Yeah, it's such a great pair of actors. And so players of the game, The Last of Us fell in love with Joel and Ellie as characters. And even if they didn't always agree with their actions, and now millions more who are experiencing the story for the first time in the medium of television are in much the same boat. The success of the conclusion of this story depends on our investment in their well-being. So if you felt the connection with these characters as they progressed in their journey, how did that manifest for you? My natural inclination to react to stress in life is anger. 
gray anger. I have it right here. I can feel it right here, right now. So I have to take a lot of uh, activities in my life to uh, express that anger in a positive way. So TM is one way I do that. Uh, cannabis is another, like just exercising, eating right, all of those things. So I naturally gravitate to characters who are angry, who are fussy, who are upset with their lives. And and so if you give me a character like that, I'm automatically going to fall in love with that person without even knowing what they're about. So Joel, from the beginning in the game, in the show, 100% right there with him. I'm with you, buddy. I hate the world too, a lot. <laughs> you know, and so that was good. But then you get this bright light of Ellie who loves her world despite it being complete shit around her and she just takes it kind of as it comes and it's an attitude adjustment that ultimately affects the entire game almost like a dougie jones kind of situation where she creates a better world around her mainly because of her attitude and she ends up healing joel too so that is very attractive to me as a story the idea that there is a redemption for the irreverent angry man (laughs) i need that i need to believe that that's true so uh, I'm already with Joel, even despite his faults, even when he goes beast mode and becomes a mass murderer, I'm still with him in that. I understand that there's a lot of moral complexity to what he did, but it was always going to be Ellie is going to sacrifice herself for the world, but Joel has dedicated his life to protecting her and keeping her alive. That was always going to be the conflict that exploded in this story. So uh, 100%, I'm with both of them. I still love both of them. There's never a point in the story when I'm not with both of them, I think, as I'm looking at it now. What about you all? You know, I feel the same way. I That journey, playing that game for the first time, those beats that really gets you, which we all experience on the show, and then connecting with Joel. Yeah, I, I think Joel is that anchor for me as well. He's the character you're rooting for because you're seeing his journey. And Ellie is that bright light right there. Follow the light, you know. It's weird playing the game. You're bonding with the character you're playing, which is Joel mostly. Then when you get to play Ellie, there was urgency. When you start to play as her, as much as you have to deal with Dave and all that stuff, you're just like, when do I get to back Joel? Is Joel going to show up? What's going to happen? I was more concerned about Joel playing when I was playing Ellie. My love for the characters, it's still strong for both of them. I think... The show did a great job of making me fall in love with them all over again. That's something, Carl, before I move to you, I should actually tell you the way that the game set it up is that when Joel is impaled, something that actually happens inside the school, there's like a series of battles. Joel is impaled on rebar. And then there's this battle where you're still controlling Joel, but he's bleeding out and you're controlling him is really wobbly. You're like leaning up against stuff and Ellie is actually having to take a lot of the point. All of a sudden, you know, you've gone from controlling someone, no, I'm here, I'm killing dudes or I'm killing infected to now Ellie is like actually having to take point. And there's a few moments where she gets overpowered and you can't do anything. And she manages to get herself out of that situation. And then she gets you on a horse and you're riding the horse along and then you fall off. And then just as it happens in the series, she's like, I don't know where we're going. It's like one of the last things you hear. And then it goes to black in the uh, game that's in fall. And then it cuts to winter. It says, you know, you get the title card winter. And all of a sudden you're controlling Ellie and Ellie has a little bow and arrow and she kills a rabbit. And then she sees the deer and then, and then the rest of it plays out much the way that the series does. You're controlling Ellie for the first time ever. You're like, wait, did, did Joel just, Joel just die? 
you know? And so that's how the game pulls you through these moments is that the way the structure happens, there's this jump in time and then a change in character that you're, that you're controlling. So again, it's like, obviously what they had to do is just like, how do we get this connection and this, this terror and this worry that you feel controlling her because she controls different. She's not very good with a gun. She's good with a knife, but she has to go through a whole lot without Joel's physical mass and experience. I think the way they handle it beautifully in the series is showing those moments where she's going back and she's taking care of him. And you're seeing the connection that they're developing. They don't leave the question hanging of whether or not Joel is dead in the series. They want us to see that she's taking care of him. And then by intercutting that with the fact that she had this tragic experience with Riley, her best friend, right after the moment that they professed their love to each other, this tragic end had to come. You're cutting back to Ellie looking for something to stitch Joel up and the look on Bella's face, again, her eyes, right? I am not losing another person. This isn't happening, you know. Jesus. <laughs> Next. What were your thoughts on uh, on how that played out? Like, for example, the role reversal where she is having to take care of him. That's a fantastical opportunity for character growth and to allow her to have her dramatic turn and to kind of grow up a little and to show the depth of her feelings towards Joel again, because she said that very eloquently in Jackson too. And I really like how she has managed to come through everything that has happened to her with a wide-eyed sense of wonder of what the world is. Um, that beautiful scene where she drops the ladder and runs off and you go, oh my God, what the hell's going on? And she comes across a living giraffe eating leaves out of her hand. That's a beautiful shot of pure childhood that, you know, I can barely remember, but I was able to identify with that. I identified with Joel because he's depressed. I know how depression subtly works on you, like a fungus, where it will slowly change your thinking. It'll um, cause you to develop coping mechanisms to deal with that depression, that sense of hopelessness by reducing your risk-taking, not forming connections with people, not experiencing new things, staying in ruts, doing a lot of backward looking and nostalgia and looking towards the world as it used to be when you now perceive yourself to be happier, even though at the time you weren't. All that stuff. The stoicism that lots of people see, I see a defense mechanism. I see ways that he's getting through one more day and then one more day and then one more day and then one more day. And I know about that for the last 20 years too. One thing that really gets me and it got all of us, uh, this is actually a line in the series that's not in the game, in that last episode where he admits to her that he tried to kill himself. When he's talking to, and he's just completely naked in front of his brother, I've had these nightmares and I don't, I can't remember them. All I know is that I've lost something. And this is like, every day I fail her. That's actually a line that Pedro Pascal improvised and they left it in because it's perfect. Very true to the character. It's perfect. Perfect. And then later when he talks about killing himself, and you get the sense this is probably something that he may never, you know, well, maybe Tommy knew if they were together, you know, on the second day or whatever, but he says that he tried to kill himself and he flinched and he didn't even know how, but you almost get this sense that he probably said, I can't even kill myself. Not even the merciful release is something that I can have. All of that, the way that it's presented in this series, you know, because like in that last episode, she says, time heals all wounds. And he says, it wasn't time that did it. And he looks at her just saying, 
please, please know what I'm saying. Because these are two people that have spent their whole lives closed off, or at least he spent half of his life closed off. And he didn't want to say it, but basically that moment is them telling each other, I love you. Yeah. Well, he gives her the boggle game, right? And that, that's a game he knows she can beat him at. Right. And that, that's just so sweet. That's something actually that is different from the game as well, is the way that, that Joel is written and performed in the series is very much him like really trying to get her to open up. Their roles have reversed. She's now closed down. And that's the way that trauma works. They do such a good job of showing us that she loves him, but deep down, something is broken and there's a defense mechanism that's in place. And he's trying to get her to react in the way that she did before, but she's checked out and possibly had been for a while up until this point after the situation with David. I would add that there's also this element of she is starting to understand her fate at that moment. I believe this. I believe that they, someone must have instructed these characters on this because Joel's eyes in this, or uh, Pedro's eyes in the, in this scene is very, you can see it go from monologue to dialogue as he's having this conversation with himself about the very same thing that she's now coming to grips with, which is I'm probably going to die in order to make this vaccine or whatever it is. I think she's kind of resolved herself in this moment and he is begging her, let's go back. Here's the game you can beat me at. Let's go back. We're crossing this path. She's resigned herself to her fate. I mean, imagine pulling Jesus off the cross, but like, hey, buddy, nah, come over here and sit in the cool of the garden. You know, you don't have to be up there. That's that last temptation. I think that's happening right there. So while there is an element of trauma, of course, I think there's also a resignation of fate. And he is fighting against it from that moment forward in that episode. The scene with the giraffe you know, happens exactly the way that it does in the game. It's reproduced perfectly down to the soundtrack. I find it interesting that they got a real giraffe, but computer generated the rest of it. It's composited in. So there's a green screen with a giraffe. And basically, Bella and Pedro were interacting with this giraffe to get it comfortable. But what I love about that scene is, is that it has so many different meanings. One is it allows Joel to see that Ellie's still in there. He sees that she laughs in and she's just completely unselfconscious in this moment. And she's being drawn out by this moment of wonder. And she's just, wow, it's so cool. And she says it the same way that she did, you know, that, that when she was like outside and I can't believe I'm outside right now, you know, when uh, they first left the QZ. And you see on Joel's face that moment where he's like, there she is, right? But also, I love her so much. How could I ever let her go? Also, what the giraffe moment means is that in the midst of all of this human drama with a capital H and a capital D, nature's fine. The world's going on. Apparently, somebody opened the doors on the zoo, and so maybe some of the natural predators got some of the natural prey. But 20 years on, we have a family of giraffes out here in this baseball field. Life goes on with or without these characters. And so what I love about it is that there is a micro level and a macro level to the giraffe scene that shows us that Ellie is still in there. She's still strong and she's still fighting. She's still everyone that she was, but also, God damn it. <laughs> Somebody take the wheel. <laughs> I'm so glad to hear Carl's reaction to the giraffe. We experienced playing the game, but actually having someone watch it and get that same reaction that I got is really cool. And everything you just said, Drew, well, but the one thing, this is more on a technical aspect. I'm so happy they used a real giraffe, but my eyes, no joke, when it cut the giraffe, I'm like, is that real? Is that a CG giraffe? I couldn't tell the difference. And if it was CG, I was wowed by it, but my eyes were deceiving me. I'm like, is it real? 
And so when we watched the making of, it was a real giraffe. And I'm like, holy crap. Like, my eyes are just so trained to look for the flaws in the CG animal at all times. But man, I'm so happy they use a giraffe because I think a lot of people were expecting a CG giraffe because that's the world we live in now. But like Jubal, you said, that whole thing was blue screen around it. Obviously, they're not going to have a giraffe where it was. So that was so interesting that that part looked real to me. But I questioned the giraffe for a split second. But I love that scene. It snaps Ellie out of her funk. It allows them to have an open dialogue and Joel to give her an ultimatum. Like, hey, we could go live a nice life. And you don't have to do this. The world's not on your shoulders. You're just a young girl. You should live life. I thought that was a great moment in the game. They really nailed it in the show. I will say, like, from a visual storytelling perspective, that was very much a silent movie scene. There was no dialogue, hardly. And if you were watching that with just the visual context, even, you would understand, oh, that person is either her father or he actually has love for her. It's not obviously sexual. He cares for her well-being. She's enjoying this moment. Like, all of those emotions come through just the image. And it worked in the game and it worked in the show. Perfect. I was listening to the podcast week to week, the HBO one, because the third episode was just so emotional and they would play clips. So I take a walk on my lunch break and I'm listening to the episode and they're playing clips. And I literally just like, I I can't do this. I stopped. I was like, I need, (laughs) I need to listen to something because I was getting me all teared up just hearing the audio clips and then talk about it. And I'm like, okay, I need a day. You know, it's still very powerful and moving stuff still. There's something about this story. It's like, I, I think it has probably made me cry more than any other individual story. And I think there's a number of reasons is there's something about it that activates this vestigial paternal instinct in me. And I think that that is something that Neil Druckmann has talked about when he created the original game. He said that if the player doesn't fall in love with Ellie, everything falls apart. Whether or not they agree with what Joel ultimately does, it's the emotional core is essentially his love for Ellie and, and, and having that empathy as somebody who has lost a, a child. When Sarah passes away, both in the game and in the show, it's just absolutely wrenching, not just in the sense of like, a, you know, because we've seen people die by bullet wounds a thousand times, you know, as, as consumers of media. This is different. Well, so it was like Laura Palmer dying. Like that that was different. You know, we had seen that kind of death, how many murders she wrote. And then something just comes along and catches you in a unique way. And, and there's something about an orphan. That's the first reason why people felt compassion for Harry Potter is when they found out in the book that he was an orphan. Boom, I'm, automatically I'm in with this. But they don't often talk about parents who've lost their children. I mean, that that too is a form of being an orphan. And so we have two characters here who are broken in opposite ways that fit together. We have Ellie, whose mother gave her her knife and whose you know, symbolic father gave her her gun. She's born into a world where she will need both of those things to survive. There's something very poetic and symmetrical about that to me. Now, as, as a father approaching it, look, I'm a firm believer that if you love one person, you love all people. You have that capability in your heart. Love, love is not an emotion. It's a, it's a force of nature. So to see two people who are broken in such different ways come together and then form that 
deep of a bond. Uh, and then to have it ripped asunder by the frailty of a man unable to let that go once he has it. I think the ultimate irony of this show is that David would have been the one who would never have lied to Ellie. He would have told her the truth to the very bitter end as they were chewing on human flesh together in their kingdom of cannibalism. In order for Joel to protect her, he has to lie to her and break the only bond that matters in her life. It's very sad. Yeah, it was you know, beautifully said. At the conclusion of the series, we're presented with a nigh-impossible ethical conundrum to grapple with, possibly more than one. And we are not spoon-fed any answers about who is right or wrong in this scenario. So where do we come down, knowing the degree to which there are no real villains or heroes in this situation? Carl? I um, realized that I did fall in love with Ellie late last night. I was reflecting on that brief conversation that we had. I spouted a bunch of stuff about not knowing who the doctor was or what his qualifications were or whether the operation would have worked. Knowing the cost, it seems insane to waste the one line of research on a desperate gamble that we have no way of knowing would work to begin with on top of the moral problems. And then I was realizing that was complete and total BS justification. In the world of the drama, there were only two points, two horns of that dilemma. It's set up specifically so there is no way through. So by plot logic, at least, it would have worked. Joel chose to not let it go down that path. The very simple question is the same one as Ursula K. Le Guin brings up in the ones who walk away from Omelas. Do you build a beautiful utopia at the cost of the suffering and death of one child? Oh, God, I remember that story. Jesus, yeah. And The Last of Us walked away from all of us. And I, I don't think we can say that it's for any other reason other than the bond that the two shared. Yeah, selfishly, Joel didn't want to lose that person, the one person who gives his life meaning. And he, he loves Ellie. And so you can see it as being selfish from that angle. And you can also look at it as being incredibly selfish to sacrifice a child to get back to the world we had before. Let's um, look around right now today in this 2023 and say, uh, there's a few problems. It's not a utopia either. Better than the shithole of being run by fascists for the last 20 years. True. Not getting political moving forward. <laughs> that return also denies the possibility of coming up with something better. It also denies the reality of Jackson that they have figured out how to have an effective human entity built on empathy while there is the infected in the world. So that is the third choice, if there's a third choice, right? It's science can't necessarily save us because it's us that has to get saved to begin with. Was Joel right? Was he wrong? I don't know. And it's disturbing that neither one of the two factions who were making that choice gave the one person who should have had the agency in it agency. Joel couldn't. And the Fireflies chose not to, because like Fedra, they denied the truth to the person affected by the situation. Just like Fedra, when they killed that kid with the sneakers with sweet honeyed words for their own good, Fireflies was going to do the same thing to Ellie for their own selfish purposes. So were they right to do that? What about that kid in the basement heaped in torture, shit, and death underneath the Momolos? So the 
idea of we just take Marlene and Joel and their moral choices that they have to make. You know, if, we, if we're writing it down on paper without the experience of what's happened and what's come before, we're just looking at the situation as it is. Morally, I believe that Marlene is correct. That sacrificing one person to save the many, as Spock would say, it's the Kobayashi Maru. The needs of the many do indeed outweigh the needs of the one or the few. In this case, Joel has already abandoned society far more than Bill ever had. At this point, I think he has one commission in this life, and it is to protect that child at all costs. He's already dead when he pulls the trigger the first time. I've never been to war, but my father is a veteran. I have read many, many soldiers' accounts of of both being in war and coming home from war. And that idea of you just are dead. While you are in the battle, you are already a dead soul, and your job is to make as many more dead souls as you possibly can, and that is the Cordyceps virus. So Joel and the virus, like David, he learned from that. And so in that moment, I think the greatest thing that this show did in that episode was to turn down the sound effects of Joel killing people and turn up the music. And I think I I texted you guys earlier. This is something that Shane Meadows does a lot in his stuff with This Is England, especially whenever there's a very violent moment, the sounds in the room will drown out and Ludovico Iannaudi's music will come up to full blast and you will get just a hammering of emotion from that music. It's what you're supposed to feel. Twin Peaks does this very well too, especially in the first two seasons where that doesn't lie to you. That's what you should be feeling in that moment. He does indeed go into beast mode, rise above himself and kill every person in the room. He becomes a mass murderer, which is wholly unforgivable. It is a chain of events set in motion at that point in time that is almost biblical, I think, at at that moment. I can see both sides. My heart lies with Joel just because I played inside his character for so long in the game. I affiliated with it in the show. And while I can recognize intellectually that Marlene is in the morally superior position, I understand where Joel's coming from. And and just from a narrative, I support it because it's great drama that just bends us in half. So... That's where I'm going to stand. Playing the game, the first time I played it back in 2013, I was like, oh, well, this is where I'm going. This is interesting. And obviously the agency was to get Ellie. In the beginning, I really was uncertain of how this was going to play out and who am I killing here? And obviously in the game, it's self-defense. In the show, it's kind of the same thing. He's being bullied. He's being put in a corner. They caught a rabid dog, they put it in a cage, and they shook it. And what did they expect? Marlene should have given him a little bit more respect and allowing him to say goodbye, allowing him to do a lot of things. They just shut him out. No, you're done. Which I thought was horrible. And I think that translated better in the show, getting the audience on Joel's side because they know what's about to happen. And the audience who doesn't, I really believe that like even my wife watching was just like, they deserve it, you know? In the game, I'm like, holy crap. And then when you get into that room, you only have that one prompt. It's to shoot the doctor. I remember I hesitated. I was just like, do we have another option? Like, what if I don't? But that is it. You get that one option. So I think I struggled with those series of events when I first played the game. And then I played the game at least two more times since then. And I get it. And I get where Joel's coming from. And I agree you want to save Ellie because you were with her for so long. And in the show, you get the echoes of Kathleen 
having almost the same sort of thing. And then Sam and Henry, and then with Bill and Frank, all of them ended in tragedy. And I kind of feel like Joel's like, I'm not going out like that. My story doesn't end here. I think it was well done. I had a lump in my throat the whole time. I was like, almost. I felt like I was holding my breath. I'm assuming we'll get into the aftermath of this is the lie. I remember my wife saying like, I was with Joel the whole way until he lied. He could have told her the truth. They didn't really give her an option. In the show, they just said they hooked her up and she's ready for an operation. That also gets us on Joel's side yet again. I think it gives the writing on the show was like, we have to get the audience to be on Joel's side here. That scene in 2023, if you watch a lot of news, that scene evokes a lot of emotion, can evoke emotion on different levels for a lot of different people. I'm assuming the majority of people were on his side. I was, but it's that lie. Could he have said this is exactly what happened? Or he tells her the thing he tells her. And that's where I'm always like, oh man, what would have happened? But I feel like the outcome would have been the same. We know that Ellie, she knows something's up. And that's why at the end, she's just like, you got to tell me what really happened. Well, he does tell her he hurt, he, people got hurt. That was the only truth he told her in that whole. And I think she knew from that. that. Yeah. You know, it was so interesting to see everyone's reaction to this episode afterwards. This is something that's been in my head for so long. It was well done. I, I think the soundtrack bringing that up. Also, to go back to another conversation about fighting the infected, if we had seen them fighting infected so much, when I actually got to that scene, I don't know if it would have had that punch. I feel like bringing back the violence and keeping it on the emotional level of humans dealing with humans, and then that scene really packed a punch because we weren't numb to that violence. That's the thing is, is some of the complaints about things that were cut out, and I'm thinking back to the episode of Ken, and I actually thought they really covered a lot of ground in this one episode, and then I remember that there was five separate battles in that part of the game. If they had left all of that stuff in, then what Joel ultimately does would have had much less impact because we really needed to save what he's capable of for that moment. And again, that's how adaptation done right works. As far as like right or wrong, shit, yeah, I'm on Joel's side. But here's the thing is the illusion of choice. Because a lot of people say that, okay, the reason why the Fireflies were wrong is because they didn't give Ellie a choice. And I think that the fact that they didn't give Ellie a choice was either whether it's Marlene or the others, they're trying to assuage their own guilt. They see themselves as the good guys here. They're the ones that are trying to save the world. Ostensibly, maybe they are the good guys in a lot of ways. Maybe they are the ones that are doing the best amount of good. Who knows other chapters of the Fireflies, you know, in other parts of the country? Who knows what they're up to? But we only have this particular group to go on. Marlene's saying she would have wanted this. Well, you didn't ask her. But here's the thing. If they did and she said, no, I'm not going to do that, they would have murdered her. They would have taken the choice from her. There was only an illusion of choice because this would have been too important. There's no Hippocratic Oath here, but there's no suing for malpractice. Ellie's brain was ostensibly too important. But beyond that, when Joel's going through that hospital, he sees a bunch of military people and he sees one doctor and not a whole lot of infrastructure going on. They seem to be on emergency power. Everything's really dim. It seems really sketchy. Killing everybody is basically what we have been led to believe that Joel is capable of, you know, and by God, here we're seeing it. And they, they present it beautifully with the music and the whole thing because this is not a hero doing a heroic act. He is committing a mass murder. When somebody lays down his gun 
Joel watches him lay down his gun, make sure the gun's out of his hand and out of reach, and then he shoots him in the head and moves on. He is completely dissociated. This is the skill that he's developed over the last 20 years based on, of course, his own trauma. Uh, but boy, he's got it down. He kills everyone. And then the doctor says, I'm not going to let you take her. He shoots the doctor in the head. I'm going to say he probably should have just gone ahead and overpowered the doctor and pistol whipped him. If I was going to make one change in what Joel should have done, it would be to pistol whip the doctor. I would say it would have been to shoot the nurses. Because at that point, he was all in. It was the mercy. You know, is Marlene's mercy of not shooting Joel immediately when he said, I have another choice to make. She should have shot him right there. So that's how you become one of the last of us is making choices like that. But yeah, of course, morally, we, we, we should, he should not kill doctors. That's like. He shouldn't have killed the doctor. And the reason why he left the nurses alive, of course, is that the nurses were unarmed and, and relatively harmless. What this all kind of boils down to, of course, is like getting what Brian said, which was the lie. And the lie is what drives me nuts because if she wakes up in the gown and, and uh, she says, what, what happened? You know, and it's like, it was a sketchy situation. They had one doctor who wanted to cut your head open. You know, it seems like if you have one chance in this world to create a cure, you're going to take it very carefully. You're going to run some tests. You're going to walk it by the person. But they just wanted to crack your head open and they were going to kidnap me, drop me off on the highway. And Marlene said to basically shoot me if I did anything. I, I had no choice but for self-defense and to get you out of there because it didn't really look like they had the infrastructure or the wherewithal to even pull this thing off. Let's look for other options later. Meanwhile, we're heading to Tommy's. <laughs> well, remember that Mar Marlene said there's nowhere to hide. People already know about this. They're coming after her. Like in his mind, he basically invented a religion for her. He gave her all of the little rituals and, and the, the things that she needed in order to survive for the next X years. Um, but yeah, I, I just, it's, it's. Here's the thing though. Joel, I love him. He's not that bright. Correct. I mean, I mean, he's he's not a he's not a super smart guy. He's a contractor. <laughs> no, I'm, I'm not saying there's no you know you know you know what I mean. He's a common guy. He goes to work, right? And Ellie is smart as hell. No social cues. We've known what she's able to do. She held her own against David, who is a master manipulator, or at least he thinks he is. He isn't really a master manipulator. I think he was smarter than Joel. He's like telling a lie that he's hanging his whole relationship with Ellie on, and I think he fumbles it, and she knows it. And so now we're getting down to, this is the, how's Annie? This is, what year is this? Which is going to be Ellie's okay at the very end. He tells her all these things. And he says there's dozens of immune people, didn't matter. He piles on too many details. This is a beautiful example on the writer's part of writing a bad liar. You put too many things in there. And these raiders came in and that's why you don't have your clothes you know, and the whole thing. <laughs> She just turns her back on him and he sees that in the rearview mirror. He looks and the look on his face is just like he's crestfallen. That car runs out of juice and he and they go for that five hour walk. He is doing everything he can to change the subject. It's just like the saddest thing to see. And you know that she still loves him. She's still along for the ride. But the thing is, is that there's something between them. So I'm going to turn this over to you, Brian. Let's talk about the lion. Let's talk about the ending. What hangs with you now? after the, playing the game and watching the show. The lie itself is always hung with me. Why didn't he just say, what happened? Maybe you can white lie it like every parent or a loved one. You white lie it a little bit to massage it, but like at least you're giving maybe 99% of it's truthful. But obviously, like you made a good point. He's not a quick thinker. He can be a brute, but he's usually had someone strong with him. 
But now he has to be that strong one. Obviously, it was a flashback to his daughter. and he, he wanted to save her like he failed saving his daughter. And with the lie, I feel like you're right. They wrote it that way on purpose. He lays on too many details. She can see right through his bullshit, but she loves him. They both have a love and affection towards each other and respect. When you grow up and you realize, well, your parents are people and they can lie to you. You kind of lose that magic. You know, you're like, my parents are people and they lied to me about Santa Claus and they lied to me about all these things. And it's sort of like he's towing the line with her. It's tough because I get why he does it. I don't agree with how he did it. I'm glad that even in the game, I think more in the show, I think Josh brings up the the eyes. It's all in the eyes. You can tell more in the show that she's unsure of what really happened. She wants to believe him. I think she wants Joel to be honest with her. I think that's the aggravating part. I want Joel to be honest with her too. The lie's a tough one. I mean, if he said, like, I had to kill everybody. I had to kill the doctor. That's a tough one to swallow. Is he smart enough to massage those where that doesn't come out and maybe he can lie about other things? I don't know. For his character, doing what he did and obviously laying on too many details, that's who he is. And he doesn't want to lose her. He's grasping at straws. He's like, what can I say? What can I do? I got to think real quick on my feet. I'm not good at this. He just opened up to her the day before. The walls are down. He's totally open to her now. And then it's like, oh, crap. I don't want to put my walls back up. It's a tough one. I don't agree how he did it and what he said, but I get it. I don't want to talk any more about it because I'll let you guys. What are your thoughts, Carl? She gives him one more chance. They walk up that hill and they see Jackson spreading out in front of them. And he says, here you are. He's presenting it to her like this is what you wanted. This isn't what she said she wanted. This is what he wanted. And then she stops him and talks about all of the death that has basically led up to this moment. Since I don't know what happens and the story picks up, I guess I can play devil's advocate and play against my standard type of being the most depressed and darkest person in the room, which honestly is kind of a nice change for once. Throughout the last episode, nobody's giving Ellie any agency whatsoever. And in fact... There's many motivational posters that will tell you that none of us have any agency at all except for how we feel about the situations that we don't have any agency in. What if Joel's lie is the one thing in that whole fucked up situation that gave Ellie a choice? Because what his lie, his terrible lie, does for Ellie, not necessarily for Joel. Joel probably is actually wanting to totally sell it and convince her that she's free, she's going to be safe, nobody's going to be coming after her, and she doesn't have the weight to bear, the weight of Jesus to bear about saving humanity by giving up her own life. He wants to remove that from her, but he does it badly. And what that does, it gives her the choice to either reject it because she intellectually that he's lying Joel decided that I wasn't going to die there and that Joel's willing to let the rest of humanity expire possibly in order that I should continue on for a bit. Or 
she can use Joel's story to build a narrative bandage, a shield of self-deception that allows her to go on with some small scrap of innocence and joy and not have to be constantly reminded that everybody else's lives are going to be monumentally worse because I'm still alive. And that's it. To quote Big Ed, a full load. Joel was trying to save her from that. And he has given her the choice to either believe that comforting lie and make it become her reality or reject it. So in that one instance that the whole show has come down to, the major moral choice, it actually belongs to Ellie because she gets to decide what to believe. Damn, yeah. It's a good statement, Carl. Um Total horseshit, probably. I mean, um, Jill was right because Ellie's cool and we want her to go on. <laughs> That's one way of looking at things that puts the lie in a perspective of what I imagine every parent who lies to their kids is trying to actually do. They're trying to protect them and trying to give them a choice about whether they want to believe in Santa Claus or they want to be fully rational. It's the hardcore atheist who cakes their kids to Catholic confirmation just so that they can see that there's a choice. Mm. I think Carl and I are very, very close. So I'm going to invoke the immortal words of David Milch here when he, he talked about creating Deadwood, the idea that history is a lie agreed upon. Every society needs some kind of centralized organizing principle, whether it's religion or gold in Deadwood. And here it's this lie that you're just like everyone else. There's nothing special about you. I think you're exactly right, Carl, that that choice is Ellie's to make. And I'll even invoke something that David had said earlier, where he said, here's the exact quote, I'm a shepherd surrounded by sheep and all I need is a friend and equal. So there are moments where Joel is, you know, not Ellie's equal for most of this part. And I would argue that they are exactly equal when she runs out of that burning building and they are embraced. And, and that is a moment where they have true equality. They've suffered equally. They have loved equally. And then from that moment on, Joel starts to recede while Ellie rises up. And, and, and I will say that, in my opinion, the rest of The Last of Us should, if it is successful, tell a story about where Ellie does meet her equal. It's not Joel because he's already morally declined. He is in the apex of his power and his moral authority by the end of the show. And so I think her okay is an act of mercy. To me, the okay is, is a decision. Ashley Johnson and Bella Ramsey played it almost identically. She's giving him one last chance, basically, to come clean. She looks off to the side and she says, okay. And then she looks in his eyes. And that is a decision that she's making because the idea of pulling her out of there and what that means is too terrible to contemplate. Before she says, swear to me, that what you said about the fireflies is true, she is talking about Riley's death. She's talking about Sam's death and she's talking about Tess's death. If I recall in the game, she says, I'm still waiting my turn. They cut that out of the series, probably because that might've been a little bit too on the nose. She thought that this actually would have been a fulfillment of the meaning of her life, which is why we know that she probably would have said, yes, go ahead. We know that. Joel knows that. When Marlene puts the question to him, you can see on his face that he knows that, but they didn't give her that option. And he knows, and Marlene knows, that the idea of bodily autonomy, as far as Ellie is concerned, was an illusion anyway. 
at this point, she's saying, I'm going to choose to believe you because to even contemplate what you must have done to get me here is unthinkable. There's no margin in her not believing him at, at that point. But Ellie's the sort of person that I can see compartmentalizing and believing him until it's time for her not to. As we tend to do with our families, right? Yeah, yeah. And it's not too much of a spoiler to say that going forward, you're going to see a a fraught relationship between Ellie and Joel, as we're seeing set up here. And how that's going to play out ultimately is to be seen. But I'm going to actually sort of end my own statement here on this podcast with uh, something that Neil Druckmann said when he was asked, what does the second game, what does The Last of Us Part Two mean? And he says, well, the first game is about love. And the second game is about hate. Just kidding. Still about love. (laughs) (laughs) They're very close to each other. Yeah. (laughs) I want to thank all of you for being here in my life and uh, on this podcast. Any uh, final words from you all? I love you guys. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, all all I have is gratitude. I mean, thank, thank goodness we have this forum that we can come together and talk about art and not freaking politics. Right. (laughs) This is a conversation that made me a better person. And it's, uh, I call that a good two and two hours and 45 minutes well spent. (laughs) Yeah. Same Same here. I was great to see everybody. And I hope at the end of season two, we get to do this again. Let's do it. Let's just make a, we're going to make a commitment to do it. We'll do it. Thank you all everybody for being here. Thank you for our listeners for listening and we'll see you all in the trees.